0: Hey, everybody. I'm Agree. I'm Harrison. And this is Bottom Line Design. And uh, this week's episode, we've got Sharif Matar here. So, Sharif, do you want to give everybody a a quick uh, quick summary of your origin story and and how you got to be where you are today? Sure. Um,
1: Every time I tell the origin story, it's different, kind of like the Joker. Um, So I will tell the origin story. I grew up in Hawaii in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. And um, I was always interested in technology even though I went to this very uh, kind of artsy uh, Montessori type school, it's called Waldorf. And they actually didn't allow for technology, but I had dyslexia so I really struggled in school. And it was only until I was able to get my hands on kind of like a library computer and then eventually convinced my school to bring in uh, these like those huge colorful um, uh, apple computers that i was able to uh, start playing games and doing different things where this self-learning where sort of it unlocked my uh, ability to sort of learn and and so i've always had this obsession with um, technology from a young age um, and then uh, I was deciding to go to school and um, I, I was going to go to one school on the East coast and then I visited, uh, Santa Clara and Silicon Valley and just being around all those tech companies, um, uh, kind of sold me. And, um, I was doing a lot of like video production, storytelling, filmmaking, um, and, uh, uh, went to school in Silicon Valley and, uh, started doing marketing for tech, uh, and some of these, uh, big companies and very, very quickly realized that technology is not good. It's not inherently good. It's just a tool. And that actually there are certain things that make technology, specifically software, good and bad. And that the most of tech and and software is actually pretty terrible. You know, it's really not good. And so this process of making technology and software good um, is UX. And so I uh, started learning UX and UI and um, I've been working in the industry. I taught design for uh, a while and I've been working in the industry for many years and now I'm uh, director of design, um, have an agency and we get to work with huge companies and startups and everything in between, uh, building technology, software tools that try to, to make sure that we're making good, good technology that actually improves people's lives and open people's uh, possibilities up. I think that's the big thing that it did for me is it really kind of unlocked my curiosity and just like an obsession with learning. And so I really see it as just this en- enormous enabler of, of potential. And so that's kind of, that's my uh, origin story.
2: You know, we hear often, and like we say it internally a lot at Numi, where design will kind of like crowbar the product you know, and almost like reveal different parts of the fruit once you peel back the skin. And I want to know like mm. from your perspective, what was that first, what was that first like fruit that you peeled with design? Like what, what, what got unlocked with design that first instance in your life?
1: Interesting. Like a, like a project or just anything? Like
2: it a project, but it could also be anything if something comes to mind.
1: Uh, That's interesting. You you know, actually it was a lot of, um, you know, I mentioned I did, um, uh, animation and like, uh, filmmaking. And so I, I was really good at, at final cut pro and a lot of these editing tools. And so a lot of my initial jobs were actually UI. So I was Mm -hmm. animating interfaces and, um, so it was a lot of like app animations where I would do these like very specific animations and interactive sort of elements. And so the, I had a project where I had to do, uh, there was a bunch of static screens and I was working, uh, with another designer and I was animating different screens and there was, the the app had a pro a, a tons of problems with like loading and, and not working well. And so as we started working on the app, it became very clear to me that the specific ask originally was to make the app more beautiful and to, you know, apply, uh, these design tricks and, and kind of like, um, stick a little bit, like, it's like, wow, kind of distract them with this cute thing. And it, it, it was very clear to me as I started working on the project that that's not what the actual problem was. And that's not what actually would have improved the app. And so as I started working with them, you know, I was doing the work, you know, you can only say so much because I'm, I'm early on in my career and I'm I'm largely focused on just animating these screens. And, give it, and give I'm indicating step step to them, look, step, yeah, you know, of like,
2: are you right out of school? Are you like in your junior, senior year of college? Like, where are you in this story?
1: I'm. Yeah, I'm a uh, I'm like a a year and a half, two years out of out of college. Okay. And I had been doing marketing, right? Editing mm-hmm. animation videos, like marketing for the tech companies. I was actually marketing for maybe the worst tech company in the universe, McAfee, the security software company. <laughs> Just like an evil, say, horrible
0: uh, Yes, M's R- take the cake. RIP. R- yeah. Right
1: Mac. <laughs> like nobody, nobody thinks of that company as good because the, the software and the, the security tools are just so horrendous, but, um, I had got a project, a, a side project and it was to, it was to do this animation work. And I was doing very much UI, it was user interface. And so the, the, the first peeling of that was, was seeing that, okay the specific asks and people's intuition about what design is and is about is not actually very accurate and while it's very understandable like why people expect you know x y and z from design typically very visual typically sort of just aesthetic sort of static uh uh requests for 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 these kinds of things that actually the real value of design and in the end, the real value of the work that I did was in creating, creating a sense of understanding. So the motion that I did tried to create a connection between each screen. If you, if you just had a slight transition where you had one screen where the, the, the motion of the screen transitioned, as opposed to just it going static blank to the next, the user would intuitively understand, ah, the placement of the menu goes up. Or the screen you go deeper in by sliding right over. And then even on the the loading, right, where people are just waiting in between, you're actually creating a, a, a sense that the system is working, right? So you, t- you you click an action and you get this feedback, this very subtle feedback that, yes, the system acknowledges, right, we're giving feedback that we acknowledge that something took place and it's working on it, right? We're bringing it up. And simply by giving someone something to to know that the system is working for you, Mm. it it totally, uh, it totally improved the user experience of the app. Because now you're having feedback, and you're willing to wait longer, you're willing to put up with nonsense, because you understand number one, what's happening. And number two, you understand that the system's working, it's doing stuff for you. And so these subtle feedback loops uh, are so imperative. And so I learned those two things. The first, the first thing that really struck me is that most people don't fully understand that's companies and that businesses, when they're talking about design, they don't fully necessarily understand the real value of design, right? They have, they have a picture in their head. And the second thing is, is that the value of design can often be in these subtle explanations where people, number one, understand where they are. And, and, and number two, you know, they're willing to, uh, they're, they're willing to be, understanding. If you just give them confirmation that like something's happening. So often yeah. you just are interacting and half the time you're just sitting there. It's like, did- am I going somewhere? Is this, is wasting my time? Is something happening? So these That's- subtle things give people calm and confidence and they actually improve the user experience.
2: I love that. Uh, so two notes on that is like, so what you're saying is the first time that like design really unlocked the product uh, and the customer experience, it sounds like is allowing people to like through your animation work, people had a sense of where they came from and where they're going in terms of navigation in terms of like architect architecture and then the second thing that comes to mind is do you all remember when aim got started up and you were connecting to this to the actual internet that little bar that is probably the first instance that i can recall of an indeterminate state giving uh, status updates through microcopy. And it was dynamic, right? So yeah. it was like, maybe like three to seven steps around there. It was like connecting to doing this and- uh, or said like,
1: what it's doing and it was yeah. gibberish, but it made you feel I better. I
2: no idea what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so
1: oh, that's, that's so true. true. It's yeah. like, giving
0: product like soft skills right you're like sort of just be proactive when you communicate to your stakeholder that you're working yeah. on something, and don't leave them in the dark and suddenly your stakeholder the customer is like a lot more patient right and uh it on one layer is like good design but then it's also just like that's how that's how good work gets done right is that you like let someone know that you're actually doing the work um <laughs> so that you are not like they don't feel like they have to micromanage you or or they get frustrated what's the status what's going on yeah yeah i love that
1: you said soft skills because because so much of 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 tech is like you you think oh it's technology it has to be instant concrete rational logical you know you remove all the fluff and actually the truth is, is it should be the opposite you need you need more soft skills because you're interfacing with something that is inherently cold and not human right and so what you need to do is you need to introduce excessive amounts of soft skills which are human soft skills i mean humans are interfacing with these things you have to introduce like you said i remember people would always say it's kind of like the handshake but it's it's soft skills it's like how do you it's talking to someone and and they they give no visual cues that they're listening or they give no indication that they're understanding or confirming or asking questions. It's just like that conversation wouldn't last very long. And when you leave, you'd be like, oh, you know, I I was talking to Greg and I'm pretty sure he's a sociopath or uh, he may be trying to kill me or something, you know, because
2: <laughs> it is,
0: I just want to say on top of that, like, it's so weird because like uh, one of the things that I think about is how. How these soft skills, the way they manifest in products, sometimes they even leave like a generational signature. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. Maybe it's because we're interfacing with a lot of the tools that came up from this particular generation. But software technology that was like produced from roughly like that was popular and trendy from roughly 2008 to 2014 has a very hipster dialect to its microcopy
2: yeah
0: right where it's like you go into the api documentation i don't want to name names right but like you go into the api documentation yeah. it's like cowabunga, dude. <laughs> like cowabunga dude like if you want to check out your off code you got to be chill with the homies okay don't, <laughs> don't be making us like get you through the app store review process and have to like like really uh you know break some tough news to you buddy and you're like this is an API. I actually kind of want it to be a little cold and rational because like I'm trying to copy paste this into my VS code, right? (laughs) Um, And and sometimes it's like that, that it's like weirdly like uh, even the soft skills, like while it was built by developers, those developers were working in a certain cultural context. And that cultural context determines like, you know, if the product was built in williamsburg it's going to have like a weird williamsburg dialect to it totally. uh in the way that it's letting the user know hey we're like we're working on it
2: right that reminds me like in, in like now that we're on the subject of like soft skills in software which i love which also maybe could be like a blog post oh it right? totally could be yeah but the the first thing that comes to mind when you brought up um you know back in the day is like i feel like our parents uh and like maybe the later stage, like Gen X, they were very much the okay generation. Like you send this like paragraph or (laughs) you send a sentence, like spilling your heart out to like a girl that you like on name or something. And they're like, okay. And it's like, then your next question is, is like, are you okay? Like, did I do something wrong? But But now it's like, you can send something, uh, and then you can just, double tap and leave a heart or leave a thumbs up or say, "haha," or leave an exclamation. And just that little acknowledgement of having a range of like reaction, like micro reactions. It just brings you a lot closer in that conversation, even though there's that digital divide. Okay.
0: I actually have a weird, weird example of this one, Sharif uh, on the Stripe dashboard. Can anybody yeah. tell me, first of all, how much Stripe does in annual revenue? No. The answer is $7 billion. They do $7 billion in annual revenue. About like 50% of that goes to fighting fraud, which is also nuts or like, yeah, really? pay Yeah, like payments processing companies, the margin profile—this is bottom line design, after all—is uh, they're weird because like uh, about half of it goes to basically them paying out people who got defrauded on their network and and dealing and it's with. It's been like, that way ever since PayPal. I mean, it almost put PayPal yeah. out of business in
1: the beginning. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like Stripe on their dashboard, so massive company, right? Like as professional as they come as companies, as legit and established as they come. On their dashboard, when you log in, if you like have access to say instant payouts, which is, I guess, like a, a privileged feature that, that they have for only some customers, they'll, they'll write, they have written, we're excited to offer you instant payouts exclamation point. And I saw this like the other week and I was like, this is mundane now. Right. Like generationally, again, like as millennials, like it's so typical for us to see exclamations in the point, like the exclamation is the new period and the period is the angry right. exclamation point basically online. Right. And it makes me wonder, there must have been a ferocious boardroom debate the first time somebody <laughs> wanted to introduce an exclamation point in microcopy. Right like kind of going back to your point of like uh what what it looks like and and yeah, how typical it is now versus what I mean, it was like I, before I'm just remembering the okay generation
2: I'm remembering Yelp being the first company that I saw to introduce microcopy, and I remember like the microcopy would talk to the little illustrations, and there was this one illustration where uh if you didn't have any search results. Um, I think it was like a squirrel and it said, I'm still looking for my nuts.
1: And I, I remember like, that. Yeah.
2: What?
0: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Totally.
2: <laughs> I remember that.
1: I remember that. Yeah. And they had all kinds of like, you know, people always were playful. I think with, uh, like, you know, air, air screens and like 404 yeah, like and the stuff. 404 yeah. Saves, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's so funny. And I think Amazon's
2: now is actually delightful, not to like, you know, commit genocide against the word, oh, but like the dogs. It's, it is delightful. Basically, if you have a dog at Amazon, the first day that you bring it, a photographer takes its photo and then it goes into a bank of like a thousand something dogs that cycle out every single refresh of a 404.
1: I mean, it's, oh, that's awesome.
0: Okay, but that, yeah. so that actually begs, like, that totally begs a question, which is, like, if you get fired or laid off at Amazon. Does your dog. Yeah, yeah. Does someone have to, like, write us? Was, no. <laughs> was there a script that they yeah. wrote that was, like, listen, like, John no longer works here. We got to delete, like, Captain Maverick from, like, the database <laughs> because we, we can't be having old employees, like, dogs showing up in 404 screens. I think, by the way, Sharif, that that the custom 404 screen is the exposed brick wall of the Internet. It's, like, artisanal. It's like a like a like little delightful touch,
1: right?
2: Because you can't do anything, and it doesn't have to be functional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All, I,
1: all I has to do even is... even if it even if it is totally uh, professional, meaning like it's like functional and like not sort of thought of. That says a lot about the company, right? Yeah. Like, what is a are you allowed to even work on that page as like you know to like add some life or creativity? Uh, yeah. So it's not even just like the style of the page. It's like if it's not, you know.
2: Oh, interesting. So you're saying uh, like playful that way. It's a it's a it's a signal of what the what the company culture is if they're even addressing the four oh four page. If they don't, exactly. it's like, hey, you don't care.
0: Well, so okay, this is a question then, is like what is the right level of investment in a four oh four page by company state? And what are the milestones? <laughs> You know, what are the milestones that unlock this much more investment in the 404 page is justified?
2: Yeah. When do you get to earn, when do you get to earn the right to work on a 404 page? Is it series
1: A? No. So actually you'd be surprised a lot of times in my experience, you give error handling and error states to some of the junior designers. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: things like, uh, but actually depending on the site, for example, if it's e-commerce and it's a, it's an error page or a 404, you're talking about huge, huge impact. And so it could, uh, potentially be a redirect towards the store, you know, where it, where, especially if products are getting taken off or pages are getting switched mm. out or removed often, it's actually quite often that someone may reland on that page. If they saved a link or however, they, they, they landed on a, an error page and then there's smart redirection. Right. We have a simple saying, Hey, check out this collection or go back to the home page, or, uh, you know, what, what redirect you to somewhere useful, get back on track or even search. If you, if you handle that, well, most pages are just sort of static dead end, right? You, sorry, we, we lost you, but if you can redirect that, well, you can, you can actually make that fairly valuable. And then I would say that that's easily, if the company's just thinking even, even, uh, you know, even even subtly about that, that they, they could justify that uh, very easily. I would say there's many also examples, to your point, where it would be very hard to justify putting more than uh, uh, more than a little bit of time on that because, you know, there's so many other things to be focused on for sure.
2: And what, what you know, you're a founder yourself. Uh, and if you want to talk a little about that that drone company that you had founded, like, we'd love to hear it you know, what were some of the things that you were focused on early on when it came to design challenges? You know, how did you, you know, in, this, in, in the vein of like what we're talking about, how did you prioritize what to work on first?
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask first, what is the right amount of exclamation points to, you know, to your point, your question earlier, I because think in yeah. an email, I'm constantly stressing out where right. if I have more than one exclamation point. I feel like it's way too aggressive. It's like wait because it's playful if you if it's 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 if you don't have it one exclamation point, then you're a little bit cold and you know dead <laughs> inside and like someone hurt you. But if you have like two or three, I feel like you're overdoing it and it's like coming on too strong. What's the right amount of exclamation points in your view?
0: I also think Just that, like our generation. <laughs> right. I mean so this is I have struggled with this personally because the reference point I have is that I went to, uh, I went to a Catholic school for college. Um, I'm not Catholic, but uh, it was a Jesuit school. And so uh, a lot of the interactions were with people who were like far along in their spiritual path. Right. Mm-hmm. And one thing I always remembered from them is that they never, ever, ever, ever responded to an email with an exclamation point. And yet you could always feel them smiling in their email.
2: Oh, I like that. So, but yeah. is that because you knew them?
0: I don't know if it's just. I think that like knowing that like that's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But I never. I remember being like, "Why don't they ever use exclamation points?" And then two being like, "Well, if I just like introspected on my interior life for four hours a day for thirty years, like I probably also wouldn't need exclamation points to communicate my warmth over <laughs> freaking email, right?" But then two, is that to po- to your point, Sharif, what is the right number of exclamation points? Have you guys noticed that, like, it, we live in a time of exclamation point inflation? That, like, it used to <laughs> it be right. To- yeah. I mean, and, and now, like, if you want to actually communicate an exclamation point, you have to do it back to back. You'll do like a, you don't do thank you, exclamation point. That's like thank you, period, like 15 years ago. Now it's right. thank you, exclamation point, exclamation point.
2: Right? So, what, what you know, I... I wrote uh for my for my uh for my RISD uh application paper, I wrote how I hate exclamation points. Now, ironically <laughs> enough, I use them all the time. And it's because yeah. of one person. Hannah, you're watching, it's because of you. I literally watched my friend Hannah Pobar, super successful businesswoman, and she like she has such a bubbly personality that she would constantly throw in smileys exclamation points and you know what it brought her super close to her customers whoever she was talking to and so now i just make it a rule one smiley one exclamation point and everything else in periods but don't overdo it so my count is one
1: (laughs) yeah so i would have thought those like basic writing classes would have been like some of the most valuable classes that you would ever learn in your entire career it's just like figuring out the right tone and cadence of, of conversation, especially in, uh, writing just text. And just like, yeah, like the, the, the exclamation point used to be like, thank you. And then it went to like, if you just had like, you know, just like anything without an exclamation point, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, you're basically like, Hey, talking like this. It's like, whoa, this guy is like really needs to step up. You know, he's not, <laughs> what's yeah, wrong well, with he, him. Is everything okay? Do you think that Total
0: inflation? Uh, if you're yeah if you're a fourth grade teacher today right and you're sort of like helping these kids or like write their first letters or their their first messages like i remember uh when we were writing our first letters uh in elementary school they would tell us about like indenting the paragraph or you have to you have to start it with dear sharif comma right like and i was like no one talks like that right and do you think that now they're like you need like johnny I got to give you a B plus on this, on this like letter to your parents. Cause you didn't have one exclamation point.
2: Like how, how are they going to know that you mean? Well, if you don't have an exclamation point, I also point? think that it's like way more. And, not, and we're talking about the design of copy, but like, then we can get back to.
1: Copy is a huge thing. I, I oh, literally, I literally told, I told students, I said, if you want a job at the time when I was teaching, I said, if you want a job in, uh, the best way to get into UX at this point, in my opinion, is just focus on UX copy. Go into companies and just fix microcopy, copy everywhere, feedback everywhere where there's copy. I just said, focus on this. And many of them are literally working in that area and they're, they're doing great.
2: That is very funny. Yeah. And I totally agree. Yeah. Like, copy gets, you know, even down to it's, it's, it goes way past the CTAs at this point. It's like, okay, if you have copy that doesn't speak to your illustration that's off to the right, next to your H1, it's like, is that successful? Are you really converting the, like the two or 3% more that you could be? And then suddenly throughout the entire scroll of that landing page, if you hit like two or three optimize two or three percentage optimizations throughout the whole scroll, you've suddenly hit a 20% increase in conversion. Right. And a lot of the times when we're talking to, uh, um, clients of ours, we are constantly stressing the need to have your copy match with uh the value and also maybe the the illustrations or the photography that's off to the side. And then bonus points if you get it to the CTA and have a relationship there and then verbatize it, right? Versus yeah. like, you know- learn- And the
1: relationship to brand, right? So you're, you're, yeah. you're, it's yeah. all of those factors. And then as it all speaks up to the overall brand voice and personality, you know, like on one end, you're talking about like, my dashboard, my, this with a certain tone. And then in a totally different part of the, pro- you know, the program, you're talking about your, this, your, this, yeah, it's not possessive anymore, but also the tone and the experience of the brand it's just like multiple personality disorder. It's less trustworthy. It's, it's it just, again, it goes back to like, if you have a relationship with someone and like one room they they present themselves this way. And then in the other room, they're presenting themselves totally different. They just become instantly less tr- trustworthy. It's the same thing with your brand and, and your experience. And for experience.
2: the record, it is always your. It's never. <laughs> 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 right. Well, like is the
0: software serving you? Keith Keith Reboy <laughs> has this thing that I, I don't remember where he said this, but um, talk about like early PayPal guys. Like he said that one of the ways that he gauges the competence of a company um, and sees how well run they are. I think this was in the How to Start a Startup. Like uh, startup school series, um, he gave a lecture in, in that that he said one of the ways that you can tell how well run a company is is just by uh, analyzing the voice, the voice on their website, mm. and whether the voice on their landing page is consistent with the voice on their careers page and their about page mm. and like throughout the product. And most most startups um, fail in this department, and uh, there's good reasons to right. That's the whole point, right? Is that it's a mundane thing that is crazy hard to get right because of how
1: thin your dough gets
0: stretched, right? When uh, when you're trying to build something and like- um, Marketing, product, and business are
1: not working together.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also feels like, I mean, this is one of those places where you sort of like roll up and you realize that like um, design is about a lot more than the pixels, is that there's like almost like a sociological angle here as well, which is I've noticed that like the best, the best products, uh, the ones that are most consistently like winning in their categories, there's something about like that percolates all the way down to like the microcopy that the whole thing feels like it's written in a consistent tribal dialect. Um, and it's actually trying to speak to a specific person that exists in some kind of communal living, right? And they they connect with others through a shared problem that the product is trying to solve. Yeah. Which it's almost like the brand, but it's like it shoots almost past the brand to like being like this product is almost like trying to solve like a nation's problem. And it's like solving it citizen by citizen inside of that nation.
2: And and it's also really nice when like you're able to bring your customer's voice or maybe how they describe you or, you know, adjectives that they use to describe your brand into your own tone or your own like uh, ecosystem of like words or yeah. you know sentence structure that is really really special and a lot of times i i feel like founders we're all just too close to the product and oftentimes you'll see like the founders just trying to take a first stab at putting in the copy into the website before they've even talked to cust- their customers and it's like do yeah. you want to guess Or do you want actual, like, actually, like, good copy on your site? If so, go talk to your customers. They'll give you all the copy that you need. That You describe your product as um, good. They describe your product as fast, right? It's like, okay, well, go put the word fast (laughs) on your site. (laughs) Yeah, we literally ran into a founder a couple
0: weeks ago that was like, yeah, they were talking about the technology that their product was built on. On oh, the
2: blockchain, right, Web3, yeah,
0: yeah. it's sophisticated. Rather than rather than like what it was that the customers were like pulling the product off the shelf for.
2: And we were like, well, how do your customers describe you? And he was like, oh, they all they all love it. They think they were so fast. I was like, and so they use the word fast, right? He's like, yeah, all the time. Why the fuck isn't it in your H1? So man, <laughs> okay. that's brilliant. What's I love it? that you
1: asked, yeah, the the, the, the question. What, what, what do your actual customers say? What do they think? What is and number one, if they don't have an answer for that, we need it. We, we need to go and talk,
2: you talk to and, you and if
1: he doesn't have an answer for that, like subtly, like, what do they say? Because that is a hundred percent the value of what they're coming to you for. Yeah. They don't care about all of these descriptive things. It's it's, they have a value system, number one. And then number two, it's like, what problem is actually being solved? Yeah, that's, exactly. that's, that's perfect.
2: Anyway, that guy, yeah. that founder went on to create uh, a V two of his site, and if you're listening, you know who you are. Great work. Yeah, phenomenal.
1: <laughs> <Impressive>. <laughs> uh,
0: but like, Sharif, do you have an example that comes to mind of like uh, a product or or a startup experience that you've you've encountered recently that really embodies um, how much of design comes down to good copywriting?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um... Oh man, I did, um, I don't know, you know, the, 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 with the design work, you, you work internally at some of these bigger companies, so you can only say so much, but I did some ad testing, internal ad testing work for Google using artificial intelligence. Um, and you really, really see clearly the effect of copy and how big of an impact it is, even just removing a single word from a sentence, or, you know, including the right point of view or focus, sure. just subtly, just with a few words, wh- when you're talking about ads, because because the because ads are just like so so telling, right? It just you're talking about attention, right? Like for for better or worse, the whole most of the internet is 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 built on um, largely advertising. That's the business model for much of the free internet that we think of today, right? For better or worse, right? And so most of the products and services that we use that sort of improve our lives, they're free because they need our attention and so that they can get our attention and sell that to advertisers. And it's so clear when, you know, people are not going to click they're not going to engage, they're not going to read things that don't um, that don't touch them, speak to them, right And so even if there's an ad that's highly relevant, if it doesn't have the right combination of words that speak to directly to the pain that you're having or the thing that you're curious about, um it'll show up in the numbers and dramatically, right So you could have the same sentence with one one word added or removed. And you're seeing I mean multiple percentage points differences in outcomes and so you when you what? when you see that um, you you really really cannot deny that there's just this a massive impact and 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 the the biggest companies from 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 Google to meta to all the biggest companies they know this and they know that that's the game right Amazon
2: I was just gonna say two points is like um I you see this a lot in like um, advertisements um, on like, you know, Wall Street Journal or really any like news publication. But if you were to if you were to look at, let's say, The Economist or The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal in the morning, and then if you were to press refresh in the evening, all the same articles are there. Everything is the same, but the copy has changed 100 percent. And I would, uh, I would guarantee, like anyone listening to this podcast right now, go ahead, go into your Apple News app, just look at, look at, look at what's there, press refresh, and then set a timer for like five hours. Five hours, I guarantee, all the headlines have changed for optimization. Oh yeah, I, all of them. Oh, yes, oh, wow. such yeah. a thing. Yeah.
0: yeah. I thought you were gonna. I, I didn't know where what direction he was headed in at first because I was like, I have seen headlines change. Was it like about to be like? It's a different audience reading in the evening, and a <laughs> lot like, of no. times they're like, <laughs> a sh- they're a lot shorter and a yeah. lot
2: more uh,
0: divisive. Yeah, yeah. You know? And you actually like, um, you can see in the fossil record, right, in the yeah. sedimentary record, that you'll see like the shortened uh, URL of like the slug for the yeah. article. Whoa, wow. Right? Oh yeah. And then, and then it's a little bit more inflammatory. It's a little bit more sensational yeah. of a title in the headline. So it'll be like, like inside this influencer's life. And then, like that's like the slug you see in the URL. But then you open the the article, and the headline is like, "Everybody hates this influencer. Like, look at why. Uh, check out their life." And you're like, "Okay, clearly, like this
1: is not
2: who's getting more clicks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's clicks. Yeah, I think I think Netflix is the one that really put this at the forefront uh, because they obsessively. So that, interestingly enough, they're not ad ad run or they weren't, and um. They obsessed they obsessed over this of getting people to engage with content where they will ask those questions in the beginning uh, you know a few questions about your interests uh, the types of content that you're interested in and their algorithms early on this is years before this became as popular I would say the only the only other company that was doing as as well is like maybe Amazon with the, the similar recommended you know products Netflix, obsessed over this algorithm and it became insanely, insanely specific, even with such limited information, right? So they, they didn't care about what other companies cared about a lot of demographic information. They cared about a few things. If you knew, if you liked the show friends and you know, this movie and X, Y, and Z, they know for sure that you're going to like this kind of thing. But then what they did was, so they got really good at showing you the kinds of things that you would watch. But then what they did was they actually took the images for all of the previews and they totally switched it and it would, they would switch it multiple times often and they would show you the same stuff with different images and they would literally run tests on all of those. And then they would refine the type of image. I mean, it would be a totally different show. Like you would watch one show and it's like a, a slasher type, you know, guy, you know, with like a knife in the front. And then they would test out a different version where it's like this, like on a lake. And there's like a small family in the distance, like a beautiful or sort of like portrait. they cycle through
2: different actors to see which actor you identify most.
1: with. Yep. That's exactly you know? it. Different actors, different everything. And they would just test. And then they would refine it based off of your engagement. And yeah. they would say, this is the best clip art. This gets the most engagement. And they could just fine tune it just like that. It was just and like, I... the, the, it was masterful.
0: And yeah. It, yeah, the the um, the thumbnail one is actually the one of the most interesting examples of this because it was part of their personalization. Was them personalizing the thumbnail. I remember them reading like reading somewhere. This must have been like almost a decade ago that when Netflix was doing these tests. One of the things they found was like uh, a common pattern was that the uh, the thumbnail that they picked would oftentimes either feature a character who looked like you. Or one who they thought you would be physically attracted to. Wow. Yeah, and so like uh, I noticed this like uh, my sister and I uh, have uh, we're on the same uh, Netflix account, and the thumbnails that we get uh, recommended when we're on each other's like profiles or whatever are very different, and they kind of like roughly fall into that that um, that persona like set, right? So like oftentimes I don't know like you'll you'll see like. Uh, in one demographic, it's like you're getting one set of thumbnails, and then if you're in this other demographic, and I don't even think they they know exactly like you don't sign up and say like I'm a male, age you know late 20s or
1: whatever. It's more just like they they can know all of that from the from the questions of the, of the movies that you like and this show. Exactly, exactly. They tested it. They compared it. They said we we are more accurate at determining age, gender, all these different specifics, even like where you're from. If we just focus on the content that they're interested in, then if, if like they input it because they could, they could actually pinpoint it and they could match it up.
2: Correlation design is a really, really trippy field of study because, and like, I think like the closest discipline to it is data science, right? Yeah. The data science team at Target, it was either in like the early 2000s or the late 90s, but It was when data science was, like, kind of really coming on the scene. and Was that the
1: pregnancy thing? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is wild.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, tell that story. Yeah. Basically, what happened was um, Target got so good at correlating, let's say, when you buy chocolate chips – they're going to put s'mores right next, right next to it. Okay. Those two make sense. They're going to put graham crackers right next to the s'more. Okay. That makes sense. But then there's a 90% chance that you're going to buy a sausage link. And so they'll put a sausage link right behind you or something. They got so good at that correlation data. Obviously I don't think that those, those two things would go together, but like they got no, so, I mean, this is,
1: good this, is this is telling about you right now, actually. I think everyone's judging you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they got so
2: good that that in their um mail flyer in their like their their in mail flyers like physical mail flyers, uh, they would begin to write, uh, they would begin to write um personalized messages based off of life milestones, and in one case there was this uh underage uh, there's teenager basically receiving mail from Target being like. Hey, like, uh, get ready for that baby bump with these, this new maternity clothing or like, you know, stock up now. So you don't have to like rush while you're pregnant. And the father is like, what the fuck is this? Why are you getting this, this stuff? Anyway, it was a whole thing. I think it was in the, uh, the power of habit where they describe all the nuances of it. So anyone curious can check that out, but it's true.
1: Insane story. And so that's how the the dad found out and, and, The daughter was like in big trouble and it caused all kinds of problems. Yeah. And it, it definitely brought up a ton of privacy and icky, creepy feelings that people, um, people got really upset about what is being known and tracked about them. But the, and now at this point it's, it's universal. I mean, every Uh rewards grocery store, every store has their own sort of point system and they're all run by a certain set of like agencies and, they're all just—it's all just data collection on customers, and they're just personalizing, personalizing, just knowing more and more about customers. Yeah, that is wild.
2: I got a question for you that I, I constantly toy, toy with this, which is, on one hand, I get so, so frustrated with Siri not understanding a lick of anything I'm saying, just had a huge head start and just dropped the ball. On the other hand, I really, really value my privacy, but I love when I can chat to, uh, you know, GPT or uh, Google or um, even Alexa is pretty good compared to some compared to Siri. Where do you stand on when customer experience has to sacrifice some of your privacy, or sorry, you have to sacrifice some of your privacy in order to get? a good customer experience
1: totally you know this is an interesting one and um it's probably better if i don't yeah i don't care like so for example you know most people most people say okay Apple's really good at privacy they they use it as a in the forefront of their marketing right um, they say this is the most secure, you know, we, privacy first. I mean, they use privacy and private and, and making sure that every, the content and the, the data is on device. And it's true. I mean, their focus and their obsession with this has definitely moved things forward. I mean, they fought governments. They fought governments to keep uh, back doors from being built into every device, right? Where this is universal in, in, in China, places like China, where pretty much most technology has has a unit whether it's the internet or every device there are backdoors where the government can have access and and nobody knows about it and nobody talks about it but in for for US companies and US, pro, uh, US products you know it's 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 built in that you know if, you, if this is your data or this is your privacy or your face recognition or everything it's on device and it's not shared with anyone it's not used but the truth is is that's not their business model they don't get money from people's personal information right and so it doesn't cost anything for them to say this is something that this is a value that we have right it doesn't interfere with their business model in fact it helps them sell products
2: yeah it's so definitely a marketing asset but it's at marketing time serious terrible serious terrible and the reason is
1: because they yeah. don't have the data
2: yeah it doesn't Google, have you can't talk to Their the cloud whole
1: business model is personal information Yeah. right yeah so all the companies that collect personal information and specifically do advertising typically they also have really good ai it's not a coincidence right yeah it's just a ton of content that is shared and even if it's anonymized right in different ways and and used and leveraged it's free content it's crawled it's analyzed and they're able to just better understand when somebody asks a question if you're asking uh, a smart assistant a question, but also the answer that it gives you, right? It intuits and makes connections that are actually realistic based on the amount of data that is trained on. That's it, right? So from across the board, you can basically say, if it's a company that works in data, their AI is pretty good. If it's a company that doesn't work in data, they have to struggle or buy another company or do something. So that's the case with Apple, right? They have to basically figure out a way to solve that because their business model and their specialization, you know, they've tried even certain things on the web and and that's just not, that's not their forte. That's not their focus, right? It's this magical mix of software and hardware, um, you know, that they've really mastered and and they've done really well. um, And they've chosen to sort of stay out of certain things, right? The closest thing that they're they're involved in that's like that I would say is like the app store, right? Mm -hmm. But then if you're talking about a a company like Google, they have the best AI in the world, and that's because they have an enormous amount of data. That being said, they actually have to work a lot harder on things like privacy and security because they're having customers need to trust them with the most private, sensitive things. And they can't have a bunch of people on the Internet feeling constantly feeling grossed out by the personalized advertising that's targeting them. Right, there's a nuance between relevant advertising, and what the hell? I don't trust them. Why am I being told this? Right, everyone believes, regardless of whether it's true or not, that Meta is somehow listening to them with their phone, because, <laughs> it, it, because, but they don't have to. The truth is, is they do not have to listen to you to get that accurate of advertising, because people will have a conversation with their friend, right, or their family member, and they'll just be like, oh my god, like. Okay. I, I need to buy a new car or, oh my God, I was thinking about like, you know, you know, this person and gossiping about a specific topic. And there'll literally be an ad like later that day in, in, on, on Instagram. And they're saying, okay, it's definitely listening to me. The truth is, is it goes back to what we were talking about early, earlier of th- they can just, just based on your behavior and the demographics that they have on you and the time of day, they can basically predict what's happening in your mind. And so they don't yeah. need to listen to anything they know and that the targeting is so effective its algorithms right it's not like there's some individuals thinking what what should they advertise it's not like madmen it's like an algorithm that basically can predictively know that you're going to feel this way and do this kind of thing and think about this kind of thing and this is coming up in your life you know so whether it's a a, a pregnancy a or as, you're buying a new skirt
2: as, sorry I'm right? so as like as a startup founder you know you're just generally right like how might a startup founder go about introducing their their brand and their product in the data world that's like maybe let's say direct to consumer but they don't have any trust yeah. but they're asking for a lot of trust how do you how do you ask a customer for that
1: you have to you i i would look at you know, it goes back to this conversation of soft skills. How do you build trust with people as a human being? I mean, I those questions. Yeah. Uh, You know, some stores, you, you walk into the store and they say, uh, oh my God, uh, you look so good in those jeans. Or is there something I can help you with? Uh, Can I get you a cup of water? Or, you know, the easiest thing is reciprocation as humans. When somebody does something for you as humans we feel like we have to do something back or be nice back Back. and so uh whether you go in to uh any kind of place if they're giving you things whether it's gifts or a free this or uh you know any sort of like here's something that's just they're using reciprocation so uh, that's one way to, to build trust. I think people are really smart and so they can kind of see through if that, if it is, if it is purely kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, manipulative, but I would ask, how do you build trust with human beings? And I, and, and every business is going to be different, right. In the, the tone and the, in the relationship that you want. Um, so, you know, you can build trust with, uh, having just a better product or service that is more more reliable right just that consistently high resolution clear photos uh, and copy that is trustworthy right so uh, in your as you're sort of navigating and the 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 uh that navigation is intuitive so you understand where you're going that builds trust mm-hmm. have you ever been like lost somewhere in a big building do you no, trust well, that place
2: yeah right, right.
1: But if but if you're walking somewhere and there's like these clear signs, you know, the airports are a great example of this. You know, do you hate this airport or do you love it? It's usually because you can intuitively get to where you need to be. um, And it's it's sort of well well laid out and there's thoughtfulness about lighting. So there's there's that kind of thing. First, first build trust. Yeah. And then ask yourself, how do you you know, how do you how do you build that with with a human being and then try and apply that? in the digital realm, I would say.
0: Totally, and I I wanted to discuss something that you also brought up um, first time we connected. uh, And I think a concept that a lot of people uh, are exposed to or they may subconsciously be doing and they don't have a word for it, so they don't catch it, which is design theater. Can you explain to us or to the audience, what do you mean when you say design theater? What is design theater? What does it look like? How do you identify it? How do you avoid it?
1: Yeah, I think of I think of design theater a lot, um, and it's good and bad. Um, it can be, it can be extremely helpful, uh, in some cases, as a way to build a culture at a company or uh, well, get what is- different departments working together, uh, get people thinking about this. Uh, and what comes to mind is what we talked about before, uh, as well. Well, like these kinds of sort of like brainstorming or like design sprints where everyone gets in a room and we're all going to be creative together and be designers, right? We're all going to put our designers hat on. And, and at the end of the brainstorming session, we're going to come out with all these great ideas. It's like, that is not how any good ideas have ever come about, right? It's not <laughs> a bunch of committee people throwing out their ideas and stuff like that and discussing things and having a conversation. It is a totally different part of the brain, right? Most great work comes in when when people are aligned on something and then they go and do individual sort of focused work or they engage in the world and then they come up with ideas and they bring it to the table and then they hash it out, right? But it's not that something's gonna come out of a brainstorming session. And so there's a lot of design theater I would say in these types of brainstorming, collaborative work environments, and designers actually sell this too. They're always saying how collaborative design is, right? And it's true to an extent, but not in the the in the realm of creativity and idea generation. And I think uh, a great way to think about this is is um, this concept of security theater, which is basically the concept that there's a performance in the same way like a theater. Where you have people playing roles and parts presenting sort of a reality or a story Uh, but the truth is is there's nothing real behind it and with security uh, theater it's basically this concept of you're presenting all of these things that indicate strength and security and safety when the truth is is there's no actually increased level of safety and a great example of this is um, uh, at the airport when you're you're doing Uh, You're checking all your bags and doing all of this. Uh, It's, it's, it's largely security theater, meaning empirically, like not just someone's opinion, because they're upset. They have to take their shoes off empirically. It's tested. The the government actually tests these things by having people go in with weapons and things like that into the airports. And they found that they basically don't decrease the ability for uh, them to catch uh, all of the, all the things that they would need to catch. Meaning there's very little increase in security, even though there's a ton of security theater, right? Literally the ease that someone has by, oh my God, I have to do all this stuff. This was really secure, right? Nobody can get away with stuff. The truth is, is that people can get away with stuff if they want to, but there's an actual confidence and trust. Number one, that all this theater is happening, so it must be safe, right? Right. But but number two that oh wow you know the, the government or these this organization or this thing is doing so much to keep us safe right so it you know, takes the stress off it takes the ease down and so design theater I think is similar where it is it's performative in that there's nothing substantively valuable about it but that it potentially provides value in that people feel involved people feel like s- actions are happening things are taking place um, and I would I would say that while it it can be valuable, right? Having someone feel safe and comfortable at the airport, you could argue is valuable in itself, even if it is not real. So you could argue that, okay, theoretically, there is some value in people feeling involved and like there's a culture at work and things like that. But I would say it is really important to, 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 to determine, is the design that's taking place theater or is it valuable and useful? I think there's far too much design theater and far too little sort of people actually asking difficult questions about things like that. And then there's also design theater as the presented to the end customer, the end user, or whoever is using it and engaging with the, the company. And so there's all kinds of performative things that you can do to increase the quality of the experience. And as long as it is not manipulative, I think it is actually fairly positive, right? And it goes along the lines of soft skills, like we were talking about earlier, right? If you, go onto a website and you see a bunch of boxes, gray boxes sort of loading, you know, a skeleton loader. And that we know for a fact, it makes people wait longer. It makes people more comfortable. It gives, it gives people something to look at. Um, And literally that's the only thing that's changing or, you know, on the Uber app, just by seeing the little cars kind of drive around and then yeah. having seeing it kind of on the way. Even if like you were to call a taxi cab and they were to literally come, come by sooner than <laughs> than Uber, people actually prefer the Uber because they and that was the real sort of solve that Uber fixed. It was it was it was this design theater of we're on our way, we're coming, like for sure. Like this car you can see on a map is coming to you, right? As opposed to just like Getting on the phone or doing something like this and just hoping that someone's going to show up and having no signals or no feedback or no anything, no confidence yeah, yeah, yeah. that things are sort of taking place. And so sure. design theater, I think, is, is, is a great sort of concept to sort of explore and ask both as a designer, but also, but also to potentially implement to improve your products and services.
0: You were gonna say something. Well, I was going to say on the subject, a really funny example of, of getting bitten by this theater or not realizing that you're watching Kabuki is like uh, the I had a friend tell me that his friend wrote his entire senior thesis of his college uh, doing almost like an analysis of uh, Uber availability and its impact on pricing by district or like by by area in a given city and across various mm-hmm. cities in the country. And his methodology, his methodology was that he would open up the Uber app and basically drag the pin to like another city or like a neighborhood in a city Mm -hmm. and see how many cars were on the app screen. And like, he was maybe weeks out from having to submit this thesis that had been like vetted by his professors and all this stuff. And he got a hold of someone on the Uber team and explained his methodology. And the guy was like, yo, you know that that's all just like made up. He was like,
2: what? And the guy was like, like all the cars kind of hovering around before Yeah, you order.
0: yeah. yeah. yeah he was like, he was like, we don't, obviously, we're not going to let you like strip mine, like our, our supply and see exactly where every individual car is. That would be like a
2: terrible, like, major yeah. privacy but it's deceptive. It, it kind of is to an extent yeah. like if were thinking about that at new me, that would never fly.
0: Yeah. Like mocking yeah. kind of like that there are cars floating around and stuff. Yeah, but he he wrote an entire. I mean, thesis.
1: I mean, Uber specifically has has gone to court for things far worse than that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Sure. Yeah, they're they're not they're not like. Uh, they're literally
1: targeting regulators' phones and giving them no. a different app experience. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. they're fighting the taxi cab. They're they're fighting the, the the entrenched industries that are fighting tooth and nail to get them out.
2: Wasn't it you like that told that. me about the different tones that Uber was listening to for uh, when you, if you're like, you know how people go between two app, uh the two apps, Uber and Lyft? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, this was totally a thing. Yeah, they had. This is you know, unethical design. This is also beautiful, but it's also very unethical. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very
1: brilliantly funny. evil.
0: Yeah, it's like statecraft is always disgusting, and I think Uber ultimately did end up like at least under Travis Kalanick's reign like definitely an, an enterprise in statecraft that they like they had when the Uber app was open they had the microphone listening apparently uh and they had it set up so that it would listen for uh the audio signature of a lift incoming ride notification for the drivers and so if you were a, a rider or a driver for Uber they were listening like and you had the uh the Uber driver app open they were listening in the background for any push notification dings that sounded like the uh the Lyft push notification ding as a way of being oh able my to prove that you had another rider app or a driver app open um at the same time and like it changed the incentive structure and yeah all this stuff you're not like, loyal
2: to us because we heard a different sound than you told us we yeah were yeah
1: exactly <laughs> the drivers just trying to Get by. Yeah, yeah I always exactly. asked. I, I every ride I was ever on, whether it's Uber or Lyft, I would always ask and say, "Which, which, uh, which company treats you better? Which do you prefer?" It was and the, the answers would change depending on the city. Interestingly enough. Oh, but that yeah, I thought that that was fascinating. You, you know, because I that that ended up being one of the the deciding factors for me is like, did the you know if the companies are treating folks well. You know?
2: What's a shame is like I, I I always ask the same question uh back in the day. Now I don't ask it because Lyft is going out of business, but it was always lift. Yeah. It it was always I mean they are. People yeah,
1: yeah they, they, they generally behind. said lift. Yeah.
2: They're they're pandoring. They are pandoring. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think okay okay, also Sharif I'll say on this that like logistics is the basis on which all leverage is built and so the only reason there was even an opportunity to have a differential in the way the riders were getting or the drivers were getting treated was because they were subsidizing they were subsidizing the entire model off like other people's dollars but like when the tide washed away and it was low tide and it was just the only thing standing was unit economics it turned out that like Suddenly the prices were like $60 to go, you know, like uh, a couple neighborhoods over. And it I think- Kind of
2: makes that yellow cab look pretty appetizing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that like now it's like the, I, my sense is at least like now that we're in the long run phase of these like markets, like the drivers kind of have all of the leverage because they're the ones actually providing the value on the platform. Right. And I, I think that this was like a yeah. thing for a lot of those like platforms is that they were, they were supply side constrained because- it's really hard to find a driver versus like everybody wants to be able to push a button and like you know get across the city
1: yeah it was no it was it was these impossible marketplaces and they were they were at, they were they were like ruining each other's business model by fighting each other, and the whole thing was basically a huge pile of cash from venture capital that was just burning right, and so they were just like they were doing everything possible. But the truth is, the story that people don't really talk about is like, who benefits? You know, people are so cynical about venture capital. The truth is, is venture capital is a horrible investment. I mean, if you if you just looked at the the majority of venture capital, most of the firms are losing dramatic amounts of money. And most people are better off, you know, e- e- extremely wealthy people are better off putting their money in index funds. And like, you know, it, I mean it's very rare that you're getting into a fund that is making you, you know, the types of the Ubers of the world, the Facebooks of the world type returns. And it's typically one business will take off out of a hundred failures. And so what happened, those two companies were, were basically competing to the death, lowering prices, you know, competing on unit economics and doing everything and testing different things out and, at the, at the end of the day, they, 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 the 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 funding the funding of this was completely private. It was venture capital. They burned billions of dollars, and customers benefited, right? The industry was fundamentally changed because the incentives were aligned there, and it was not some big plan, you know, multi year city plan to improve mobility. But yeah. mobility is dramatically improved, especially in cities with poor public transit. Yeah. dramatically improved and it was completely funded by venture capitalists wasting billions of dollars funding like a ruthless competitive uh, landscape. So it's <laughs> like, there there are multiple <laughs> examples like this, Harder. whether it's. I'm not going
2: to fight them. Yeah. Uh, I certainly yeah. them, you know, by <laughs> <Yeah>. taking <laughs> take yeah. of it. Yeah. Jury, this, this has been awesome. I feel like we covered, this is a very different tone from uh, some of our other podcasts where, you know, we traditionally talk about more of like the the raw pillars of design. But for this, it was very much around like the, the ethics of design cut the copy around design, uh, like advertising and design. I loved it. It was great. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, totally. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think just like being able to just have these conversations and where the kind of ideas go back and forth, um, I think this needs to happen more, especially as more work gets to be remote where you can start just like exploring ideas and talking about things and then something comes up and then something sticks in your mind and then something really important or or awesome comes out of it or even just a relationship. And so, um, I love this idea. I want to do it more. I'm, I'm in Amsterdam in Europe right now. And, you know, so we're in totally different places, but, um, this is the kind of world that I think is the kinds of things and conversations that are going to happen more and more. And I think only good things come of it. So I appreciate you guys' Definitely. time.
0: Definitely. Likewise, Sharif, thank you so
1: much, man. It's awesome. We'll talk soon.
2: So don't, So don't.